Hello and welcome to the MISERN podcasts. I'm Karen Culver, an alumna of Heritage Studies at Central European University. In these podcasts, we talk to MISERN members and associates about their recent and current research into the medieval world of Central Europe. Today, I'm joined by Antonin Kalus of Palatsky University Olomouc in the Czech Republic. Antonin started in history and English philology before moving to archival studies at Palatsky University. He then switched to medieval history for his masters at CEU before returning to Palatsky University for his doctorate in history. During this time, he enjoyed several research visits to the USA, Netherlands and Rome. He has written and edited numerous books and papers, mainly focusing on religious life in Central Europe. His most recent book is The Legation of Angelo Pecanoli at the Court of King of Hungary, 1488 to 1490. And it is the most wonderfully analyzed and edited collection of the letters of Pecanoli, including transcriptions of all the original source material. Outside work, Antonin is an active sportsman and photographer and a leading figure in the Misen network. Tonda, welcome to the Misen podcasts. Welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation, Karen. You're very welcome. As I have just mentioned, you have recently published a book on the legation of Angelo Pecanoli to the court of King Matthias Corvinus of Hungary in the late 15th century. Can you tell us a bit more about the inspiration for the book and the source material you used? That's a long story, of course. Uh, Angelo Pecinoli, I met first Angelo Pecinoli when writing my MA thesis uh, at uh, uh, the Medieval Studies Department at the CEU, since my topic was Jan Filipets, who was a guy from Moravia, from Prostyov, uh, at the court of Matthias Corvinus. And Angelo Pecinoli is reporting on him very much. When I first got to read the letters, all the letters of Angelo Pecinoli, and there's 15, that was very interesting. So I immediately thought of publishing uh, that material. But the first report I read in 2004 uh, in the Vatican Library, and the rest I managed to see in Venice in 2013. So this is almost like in the 19th century, right? <laughs> you have to find some time to, to get, get to travel uh, either to Rome or, or to Venice. <laughs> anyway, the, the letters, the, the reports of Angelo Pecinoli, the, uh, they are very interesting, sometimes very funny, uh, because he's reporting all his, well, discussions with, uh, with the king, discussions with the queen, and discussions with other members of the court, especially the bishops, uh, including uh, Jan Philippet. So in those reports, you have direct speech of the king and direct speech of uh, Angelo Pecinoli. Uh, it's very vivid. It's, it's very authentic. He's also giving uh, a lot of information, obviously, uh, from the, uh, of the life of the court, of uh, the events, but also the intentions. That's a uh, very interesting source material. Apart from uh, the letters of Angelo Pecinoli, I, I included also other documents related uh, to his legation because uh, I was interested in the system of 
papal uh, legation in late uh, medieval Europe. And that's why I also included his mandates, uh, the instructions he got from the Pope and so on. So it's a collection of various materials from the Vatican archives, from the Vatican libraries, and from Venice, from uh, Marciana, from the National Library in Venice, and from the state archives in Venice, and then here and there from Central European archives. I know I've dipped into one or two of the letters, and as you say, they really bring it alive. It's, it feels like you could be talking to the people. Just, just magical. Sure, it's a, well, it's a question, it looks authentic, but uh, the question is how precise it is. So of course, maybe it's not necessary to, to know uh, that even. There's even a study by, well, in the early 20th century by one Hungarian uh, scholar in uh, a journal of stenography in Italy, claiming that you know he really was making notes during uh, during the speeches during the interview. Uh, even the king says at one place, "Note this very well." The the Pope would like to hear that. So, so I don't know. It's very vivid. There's one story. I I need to share one story. One of the main tasks of Angelo Pecinoli was to liberate uh, the Archbishop of Calocha, Peter Varadi, who was imprisoned in the castle in Northern Hungary as Archbishop. He was not supposed to be imprisoned by the king, of course, because a representative of, uh, of the ecclesiastical power cannot be uh, imprisoned or even uh, tried by, uh, by secular power. So, uh, there were frequent talks uh, about uh, Varadi, but the king was explaining that he needs to uh, keep, uh, keep him under lock and key because he knows all his secrets and he does not hesitate to share them. He told the, uh, well, told Angelo, told the nuncio one story, claiming that Peter Varadi, the archbishop, was asking for a confessor, simply a priest who would take the confession, but he gave him a letter which was written with the juice of onion, which means it was invisible script. And uh, this confessor sent, took the letter and, and he sent someone with the letter to Rome. But this someone was in a pub somewhere. He got drunk. Oh, I have a letter from the archbishop. Uh, Matthias learned about it. He sent some people after him. They brought him and the letter to, to Matthias, who uh, placed the letter next to the fire. And, you know, when it got uh, warmer, uh, the script got brown. And he, he says, and then I could read all my secrets. So, and this is the style that Angelo Pecinoli uses. So he just uh, records the, the interviews or dialogues, and it may be very funny. Yes, it is extremely funny, extremely human as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why I like. Um, moving on, you've you have a new research project. It's being done as part of a large team and will last for another three years. I understand. The research is looking at religious reforms of the fifteenth century in Bohemia, and thus predating the German Reformation by roughly one hundred years. Your research is going to focus on individuals who influenced institutions 
and how those institutions impacted wider society. How does that link in with your previous research and what is new and different about religious reforms of the 15th century? Uh, that's a very complex question, right? Well, we have a, have a bigger project which includes 16 people. So, so it's not really just my project, but I was somehow putting it together uh, with various idea, ideas that really link, that, that are linked together, that, that simply come together. And we know now it's, it's uh, the reformation in Bohemia was predating, uh, as you said, predating the German reformation by uh, 100 years. The works of Jan Hus uh, are still uh, being edited. So this is one part of the project which is focusing on Jan Hus. And uh, now we cooperate basically two institutions. It's uh, Palatsky University and uh, Masaryk University in Brno. And there Petra Mutlova, uh, she is specializing on Jan Hus. And together with her uh, team of editors, they are focusing on uh, one part of that. Uh, we have other parts of the project, and some of them are focusing on uh, uh, Giovanni da Capestrano. Maybe we'll talk uh, a little bit more about him, mm -hmm. because this is a part of a wider international project. Uh, then we included our ideas of the Catholic reform, because this is something which is very often forgotten in uh, Czech historiography, maybe Central European historiography, uh, but especially Czech historiography, which is focusing on the Hussites, on Jan Hus and the Utrechtists, so the Bohemian Reformation, which was basically Czech. There were also uh, a lot of Germans living in, uh, in Bohemia, in Moravia. And I really think that they also longed for some kind of reform. So the Hussites had it, but we are Catholics. We don't want to follow uh, Jan Hus. So we also want to have something. And that's why they were very responsive to, to uh, all those ideas that were coming from Italy. So that would be the other source of religious reform, especially through mendicant orders. So this is something uh, what we are focusing on, the general reform of the church in the 15th century, which you can trace from the papacy from the head to the bottom. And it was very much uh, transmitted by mendicant orders, in our case, especially the Franciscans, again, related to our Giovanni de Capestrano. And uh, then we would like to focus on this general reform and also the uh, another part of the project, which would be focusing on this reform in a way combining uh, the results of that reform in urban settings, both in uh, Utraquist uh, towns and Catholic towns. And this is uh, very interesting because uh, we have been doing some research here on Olomouc, uh, for example, which is a very Catholic city. And uh, another colleague who is part of the project and also graduate of the Medieval Studies CEO department is Katarzyna Horniczkova, who is, who, from art historical point of view, was always focusing on the representation of uh, Utraquism in, in towns, in cities. So 
I didn't name all the people who are involved, but many of them come from the CEU. You mentioned Giovanni of Capistrano a couple of times, and he is obviously a key character in the story. What is known about his life in general? Uh, what influenced him? Where did he come from? Who is he? Uh, he's a, well, he was an Italian preacher. He became a member of the Franciscan order, or rather the Friars Minor, let's say. But this is in the um, in mid 15th century when the Friars Minor started splitting again into two branches, the conventuals and the observants. So he was following the observants. He was, let's say, the pupil of Bernardino of uh, Siena. In that sense, he was following the, the sermon style or the preaching style of uh, Bernardino of Siena. He became very influential preacher in Italy. In the 1440s, um, after the death of Bernardino of Siena, he was again very instrumental in canonization of Bernardino of, uh, Bernardino of Siena. Uh, Giovanni of Capestrano came logically from Capestrano, which is a small town in uh, uh, Abruzzo, uh, in Italy. Uh, and it's close to L'Aquila. In Aquila, Bernardino of Siena died and he is buried there. So there was always this linkage. Then uh, Giovanni of uh, Capistrano uh, was trying to actively promote the observance. He wanted to, or he was invited to go to Austria to spread observance in 1451. But when he got to Vienna in 1451, he realized there are those heretics uh, next door, right, in Bohemia, Moravia. And he wrote a letter to, to the beggars of Aquila saying that, oh, I will go to preach in uh, the Czech lands and I will preach against the Hussites and so on. So probably when he was leaving Italy, probably he still didn't know he, he would go to Bohemia or, well, to preach against the Bohemian heretics. And now this is in quotation marks because I'm from Bohemia. <laughs> he then uh, traveled all around Central Europe between 1451 and 1456. In Moravia, he visited several places in Bohemia or before he went to uh, Bavaria, to Saxony. Uh, so various parts of Germany, then Silesia in Poland, uh, then back again through Silesia, through Moravia to Austria, uh, Germany, and then he went to Hungary. He stayed for a year and a half in Hungary. Uh, he preached against the Turks. And uh, finally, he, he was instrumental in the, well, in the siege of Belgrade. He helped saving Belgrade and died a few months after. He was active already in Italy. He was active preacher, famous preacher, and then he went uh, outside with the intention to spread observance. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, he tried to fight 
heretics. Well, he was preaching against the Jews. He is held uh, instrumental in in several not really nice occasions, uh, meaning expulsion uh, of Jews from cities or even burning of uh, more than 40 Jews in Wrocław, for example. And then he was preaching against the Turks. He was not a man noted for his support of freedom of religion. I don't know if I should say this, but it's very interesting to to see uh, that he was always loved in Hungary because John of Capistrano is also the uh, the saint who was instrumental in the recapture of Hungary, the one who was fighting against the Turks in the 15th century. So now uh, he was the important saint. And actually he was canonized in 1690. Uh, that's why he was always very, very popular in Hungary. Mm. It seems to me that in Poland, he is not that popular. He's kind of okay, right? And uh, in the Czech lands, mm, <laughs> he was <laughs> not very popular, to put it lightly, because he was, you know, he was the one who was fighting the Hussites or, or he was preaching against the Hussites. Uh, they exchanged a lot of letters, but, uh, but he never dared to go to Prague or, or any such place. So it's interesting to see. We have Central Europe, we have Hungary, Poland, and, well, present-day Czech Republic. And the reception of, of Giovanni the uh, Capestrano is completely different. Although here, I'm in Budapest, you say it's much more to do with him working for the expulsion of the Ottoman Empire. Less relevant, his religious views, it was getting rid of the Ottoman. Um, that I cannot say. Obviously, yeah. he's very popular. Uh, there were uh, Catholic historians who who admired him, obviously. In Hungary, in Poland, back in the 19th century, so in Bohemia and Moravia, he was also loved for his Catholicity, for for what, what he represented. And now there's a revival of those traditional values, which are often linked to Catholic Church. Whether or not it's true, but, you know, somehow it, it fits so, so obviously. Giovanni Capestrano would uh, be part of that. Tonda, in your research proposal, you state that the laity's interest in the mendicant orders was so strong that the reform of the mendicant orders... I quote, transcends the strictly defined borders of the religious order itself and influences lay religious practice and identity. Could you explain that further? Well, this is something that we still want to research, still need to research. But uh, what you see is that mendicant orders, and now I will probably speak mostly of uh, the Franciscans, of the observance, when they settle in a town, they really influence uh, the religious life of the, that town. They are quite special in, in Central Europe. And this is very interesting because uh, we have reports, for example, of one Franciscan friar who in 1479 was traveling through Bohemia. 
what I think is important is to realize what effect uh, that could make on on people who are maybe they they never met Franciscans, they never met such friars. This was very interesting because there's a Franciscan friar from Bavaria who originally came from Olomouc. When he visited Olomouc in 1479, then he traveled to Prague. And he records several discussions with the people along the way. Uh, they were all Utraquists, and they were surprised to see someone like that. They, they never saw uh, a, a barefooted friar. They, you know, they, they told him they, they simply follow what their priests tell them. And he was bringing something new. Well, to, an ex- to some extent, the Franciscans and the Utraquists had similar views on certain matters. They are even, you know, this is even claimed by one Dominican friar around 1460, who says that the Franciscans, they are claiming the same as the Utraquists do. So in a way, the Franciscans for the Catholics could represent something which was orthodox, but similar to something which was heretical on the Utraquist side, on the Hussite side. So... In, in this sense, uh, they were bringing this reform. And the uh, relation to a laity, uh, we can see that in the communication of the friary in the town. So when the friary is in the town, it is not closed in itself, but uh, it is showing uh, the, the virtuous life. When, uh, when they were uh, trying to merge the Friary of the Friars Minor, of the Conventuals, and the Friary of Observants in Olomouc, the city, the maybe even the bishop, but also the, the nobility of Moravia, they were writing letters to Rome, according to the Franciscan Chronicle, that the Franciscans, meaning the Observants, should not be merged with the other ones, because these are those who set uh, the model for religious life, you know, the best representatives of uh, the perfect uh, religious life. But uh, uh, this is something which, which is, um, I would say, kind of twisting the, uh, the attitude, twisting the view. Another example might be uh, a saint. There was one member of uh, the Franciscan friary in uh, Silesia, and he died. And the sources claim that he was not at all special. He was a member of the Franciscan order. He just followed the rules and so on. But after he died, there were a lot of miracles happening uh, at his grave. You know, healing, mostly healing uh, miracles. And this is very interesting because this is, showing that, okay, this is the order. There's a representative of the order who is not at all special, but because he is part of that order, he can be basically saint, which means the whole order is saint. (laughs) Um, You know, following the rules of the order means being saintly in a way. So, So, 
in that sense, I think that there was a lot of response to uh, the observance or to mendicant orders in general, because they were representing something which the people were longing for. You can see it with the Hussites. Uh, they get uh, the poor church or they got rid of the vast church property and so on. Then there are others who wanted to have such uh, reform, mostly German uh, inhabitants of uh, the, the Czech lands. What then uh, was the problem for, uh, for observance of Franciscans was the spread of Lutheran Reformation. Because in the 1550s, when a Lutheran Reformation spread in all these regions, the Franciscan friaries uh, were in big troubles because suddenly they lost all their supporters. You know, all those German, mostly German uh, supporters, they turned to Lutheran Reformation. So even something even stricter, let's say, something even more reformed than, than uh, the observance. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking that if you've got the Franciscans or the mendicant orders coming into a town and becoming very popular because of their, their lifestyle, their sincerity, maybe their charitable works, that must have really upset the other orders. Was there ever clashes? And there were many clashes, of course, but uh, mostly among or between the mendicant orders, because uh, you know they are all aiming at the, the let's say same audience. So there's a lot of competition between these. If we take the example of Olomouc. There are several mendicant uh, friaries in the town. And uh, after John of Capistrano came, uh, after he preached in, in Olomouc, Friary of the Observance founded. You know, this, this could be problematic for the conventuals, so friars minor uh, conventuals, for Dominicans. And actually, in Olomouc, Heinrich Institoris was preaching for several years. He was staying in Olomouc in the Dominican friary. He was a Dominican friar. And he was preaching uh, in the parish church of Olomouc. The Franciscan Chronicle from, from Olomouc is calling him uh, the most horrible persecutor of our order. So uh, there were many clashes uh, like that. Competition is supposed to be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it leads to excellent results. Tonda, you've mentioned other research projects while we were discussing for the interview. Do you want to go into a bit more detail on those other research projects, looking again at the source materials? Uh, so before this project proposal was, uh, was written, I was together with my colleague Jan Steiskal, part of a research group which was doing research on John of Capistrano. And uh, there was an idea by uh, Letizia Pellegrini to publish all the letters of, uh, of uh, Giovanni da Capestrano. Uh, the huge, huge, huge project for the publication of all the letters was, well, the project proposal was not successful. Uh, but then uh, there was some kind of agreement that we could focus on 
the mission of uh, Capistrano in Central Europe and uh, publish letter, the letters from, from the period of 1451 to 1456. Uh, there was a Polish uh, project on the publication or edition of letters which were related to Poland and Silesia, uh, run by uh, Paweł Kras. Then there was Hungarian uh, project, or still, which still runs, run by Dirt Galamp and Otto Gecher. Constantly during these years, they were trying to persuade me to, you know, prepare the Czech part of the project. I was resistant, but not enough. <laughs> so uh, finally, you know, part of our bigger project is the edition of, of uh, the letters of uh, John of Capestrano, which are uh, related to Bohemian and German situation. But I think source editions are extremely important. There are still unedited sources in the 15th century, uh, which should be accessible to historians because they are uh, quite telling. So um, the letters and the chronicles uh, will be, hopefully, uh, those bigger results of, uh, of the project. When I was writing the proposal, I was not so much thinking of the work that is involved, but rather of the, you know, what is interesting about it. And then when you get the project, you have to start thinking about the work itself. As a final question, I was just wondering how this relates to the modern, how your work, your research relates to the modern era. Because it seems to me from very much the outside that a lot of the Christian church is currently going through a reform process. What lessons, if any, do you anticipate your research will have on the current reform process? Uh, this is a very tricky question because we know that, that uh, the church is always uh, reforming, you know, the Ecclesia Semper Reformanda. The problem between the 15th century and uh, the present uh, day situation, uh, well, it's a problem of comparison. We are in a completely different situation nowadays. <laughs> what I would be thinking of is rather uh, the Bohemian reform, the Bohemian reformation, which meant that you cannot live in constant uh, religious war. The Hussite Wars in 1420s and uh, 1430s meant basically a civil war in Bohemia. After that, uh, the people had to realize I wanted to say realize, but they had to realize that you cannot fight all the time. So uh, in a way, they were bringing in some compromises. The question is whether these compromises are just the toleration of people who are there, meaning that, okay, they have a different vision of things, but we cannot fight all the time or whether they come from understanding. In the 15th century, probably not so much from understanding. I think we, we have to make a step further to go from that into understanding, which 
the 20th century Catholic Church was, was working on very much with the Second Vatican Council and with all that uh, reform. Uh, this, is, this is positive. Chanda, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been extremely interesting. And for me, very, very eye-opening into the letters and the works of, of the source material and the letters of Capistrano as well. Thank you so much for all your thoughts. Thank you very much, uh, Karen. Thanks for the invitation. And I hope you know we can go on with uh, Metern uh, Network and simply make it grow and make it useful to all of us and to all newcomers who can join us. I hope so too. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. See you sometime in person. See you soon. <laughs>